Yo, taste buds. This week's House of Carbs brought to you by our pals at Yahoo Fantasy. This NFL season, be your own GM. Be a winning GM. Turn this season into a fist full of epic wins by joining a Yahoo Fantasy Football League. Yahoo has spent the entire offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. So when you play fantasy football on Yahoo, the wins are as epic as the season is long. Yahoo Fantasy is the only app where you can manage all of your season-long and daily fantasy teams in one place. Create or join a league now at yahoo.com slash carbs fantasy football couple great things going on right now at the ringer you gotta get over to the ringer.com listen to this story i'm gonna say it i'm not gonna make any comments i'm just gonna encourage you to read this story the bergman of the restaurant how andrew bujolski made a sophisticated hooters comedy brought to you by the ringer's own Lindsay zolatz also on the Ringer Podcast Network, the NFL is right around the corner. So, of course, the Ringer NFL show, new episodes of Ringer NFL with the likes of Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, GM Street with Mike Lombardi and Tate Frazier, and Fantasy Football Monday to Thursday all through the preseason. Check it out at the Ringer Podcast Network. All right, my hungry homies, my taste buds, we are back. It is the summer, and once again, we have for you a delicious house of carbs. The food podcast for the hungry people, by the hungry people. I'm your hungry host. This is part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Very, very psyched to have on today the 2018 James Beard Journalism Award winning writer he wrote this unbelievable profile a year ago about this unbelievable chef named princess pamela the guest is mayuk sen come on and listen to all of the terrific stories mayuk has covered and when i say covered i mean uncovered a ton of incredible stories and he's a young guy come listen to some of these stories of course we have food news with Juliet Littman. Juliet was on the Cape and she has an incredible summer meal for all of you to listen to. But let's get in that belly with our good friend Mayuk Sen. All right, my hungry homies, my taste buds, what a guest we have for you today. This gentleman won the James Beard Journalism Award in 2018 in profile writing for a long form, if I'm okay, I think it's okay to use that word still, a long form story that he did on this incredibly interesting woman, Princess Pamela. This gentleman has recently gone freelance after working as a staff writer at both Munchies and Food 52. He has published stories in the New York Times and the New Yorker magazine, and most relevant to me, he published a story in July on the ringer.com about the founder of Benihana. It was an incredible story, beautifully told, 
I took a mental note. I said, I need to talk to this guy. Mayuk Sen, welcome to House of Cars. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Truly appreciate you having me. Yeah. So uh, I know in the first place, by way of our uh, diligent research, that you were not necessarily a, a food writer. Um, that wasn't necessarily your original ambition as you um, finished school. Can we talk about how you we, we have arrived at this moment where you and I are talking to each other about these incredible stories you've been writing about incredible non-white people? So I think it's important to emphasize that right <laughs> out of the box in the, in the world of food. Um, how, how are we sitting here having this conversation, Mayuk? Yeah, uh, it's really weird, my... Um whole path to food writing was super circuitous. So I started food writing uh, full time two years ago almost. So it was September 2016. Uh, so I'm 26 years old. And um, so back then I was, what, 24? So I had been freelancing before that. A youth! You're a youth! Yes, I am a youth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm practically 12 years old, you know? So um, I'd been freelancing <laughs> at that point. Um, mostly writing about film and music and television because initially... I wanted to become a journalist um, to enter into film criticism, really. And so that was kind of like why I started writing to begin with. And so I had been freelancing for a bit. And then the then managing editor of Food 52, Kenzie Wilbur, she contacted me in August 2016 being like, hey, you know, we've got this opening for a staff writer and we want someone who's more of a generalist, someone who isn't a food person, quote unquote, someone who doesn't know much about cooking, but can write well and ably about things that normal people might be interested in. And, you know, I kind of like got that email and I was like, uh, I don't know, you know, this sounds kind of funky. I don't know if this is really for me, you know, but I took the meeting because I was just, you know, taking meetings at that point and not saying no to um, anyone because I was so early on in my career. And yeah, as I yeah. had good instinct, totally, you know, just being really open. And um. So I took those meetings and after a few conversations and formal interviews, I was like, you know what, I can see my place for myself in food writing, you know, because at that point, food writing, at least what I had consumed of food writing online had struck me as kind of sterile, kind of boring. You know, Food52 itself is a website that historically was it was founded for home cooks and it was pretty much a user generated recipe website. And then it became an e-commerce brand, so it didn't do a ton of journalism by the time I joined. But I thought that there was really going to be space for me to tell some interesting stories that I wasn't really seeing in the uh, digital landscape of food media at that point. So I reluctantly signed the contract, and I was just like, "Let's see how this goes," you know. So that's how yeah. I got here. And and how about what was the first story you did for Food Fifty Two? Well, the first big story was actually about my circuitous path to food writing. And I was basically just like, hey, guys, so I'm an idiot. I don't know anything about food. I don't know what like zest is, for example. I literally didn't learn what zest was until September 2016. I was really, really stupid. You know, because I'd not grown up cooking. Um, I'm just I'm terrible at cooking. I, I still think that's true, you know, two years later. Um, but uh, my first story was basically like, hey, so I'm pretty much an outsider entering food writing and I hope you like me uh, because Food52 is a very interesting website in the sense that it really cares a lot about its commenters and it has a very active community of people. So I think that my first mission when I got there was to, you know, get in the good graces of 
these loyal readers who'd been with the site for so long. Um, and in that piece, I also talked about the fact that I am a gay brown person, child of immigrants, and food media, like a lot of media, is very white. And I did feel right. kind of reluctant about entering this space, especially a place like Food 52, which, you know, for the most part had been, again, like I said, a lot of recipes, a lot of stuff that's pretty harmless and inoffensive and stuff that doesn't necessarily um, have the potential to really rile people up or get people to disagree with each other. You know, so I was kind of entering that space uh, about to fuck shit up, basically. Yeah, but to tell stories that haven't been told, um, which is the 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 right segue, I feel like, to sort of uh, at, from from the beginning, you have had... Uh, to, to my way of thinking, um, terrific success in finding incredibly interesting people from different walks of the food world and have, you know, achieved different kinds of levels of success in the food world, um, but all of which are like very compelling figures. H how have you... Well, I, I don't need you to to go through your process necessarily. You don't have to to <laughs> fork over any of your trade secrets, my uh -huh, youth. Totally. But how have you found these these subjects? So it's funny because I think right now, you know, kind of looking back on these two years or whatever, I feel like one of my main beats, or really my only beat, is uh, writing about dead people of color who are in food, you know, people who are forgotten in some way. <laughs> but um, yeah. it's funny because, you know, we were talking about the Princess Pamela piece and I wrote that piece last February, so February of 2017, and that was actually the first piece of its kind that I wrote. So how that story came to me, it was really funny. I um, was sent a Publishers Weekly article by my editor who was like, oh, hey, you know, this like old ass book is being reissued this year you know maybe it's worth like a 500 word article or something i was like yeah cool okay i'll take a look whatever you know and then i started digging in and i realized like shit like this story is insane like you know it's about it's this insane it's it's crazy right because okay i had like grown up first of all like watching robert stack on, on like unsolved mysteries so of course i was like <laughs> obsessed with this kind of story of like someone who went missing and like is potentially dead and she just disappeared without a trace but you know i i saw this article and i was like okay there is a lot to mine in here you know the story of this black woman from the south who came to new york with basically nothing opened two restaurants that were so unique and inspired a lot of loyalism within the people who actually ate there. Um, and then she just disappeared without a trace nearly 20 years ago, and no one knows where she is. Because um, at that point, I had read this amazing book called um, The Jemima Code by Tony Tipton Martin. Um, and it was all about all of these cookbooks that have been authored by uh, Black and African-American um, writers uh, since, you know, um, throughout American history. And through that book, I understood how the extent to which African-American contributions uh, to our food culture had been erased. And Princess Pamela just seemed like a test case of that. You know, someone who literally went missing. No one has any idea where she is. And it's taken these two white celebrity chefs like the Lee brothers to resurrect her work. So I felt like it was a really good opportunity for me to just, you know, kind of go deep into what we knew about her disappearance, but more importantly, what her food meant to the people who ate it and what they remembered yeah. of her, you know? So I, I, I want to um, first 
shout out to all the, the taste buds. The name of the story, it's she was a soul food sensation. Then 19 years ago, she disappeared. That's the title of the story. It's on Food 52. And you talked about her working in, in restaurants. I mean, we I, I can't uh, emphasize enough how much uh, I encourage folks to go look up this story and, and read it with their own two eyes. But like one of the restaurants was her her apartment. It was insane. Yeah. And, and the way you had to get up there was you had to like shout from the ground and be like, Princess Pamela. And then she'd throw down a key and then, you know she'd let you in and sometimes she'd just like size you up by like creaking the door open and if she deemed you not worthy of being in her space she just like slammed the door shut you know she was a very moody woman you know but that is what makes her so fascinating to me as a figure you know because like the people who did eat there and loved it you know they have nothing but amazing things to say about her right and and uh you know the story ends we still don't know whether or not she may may still may be alive right yep we have no idea you know so like uh, i reported the story in january 2017 so you know i feel like i'm losing my memory i have <laughs> i have zero clue of you know how long even it even took for me to write this story but i do remember um that the prevailing theory was that she is either uh buried on heart island right outside of new york city or Mm. That's pretty much the prevailing theory, you know. Um, there's no yeah. really other um, understanding of what even happened to her, and there still isn't. Even though like the story's gotten a bunch of visibility, you know, we're we're no closer a year and a half later to understanding where she is, which uh, is a shame, you know. But I sometimes have a fear that you know she's gonna pop up one day and be like, "I'm alive," and you got this and that wrong about me in this story that you won a James Beard Award for, you know. So hopefully it doesn't happen. <laughs> No, I'm rooting for that to happen. How incredible would that be? It would be, know. you know, an, an all-time closer. I don't want to, <laughs> um, you know, distract from the incredible work that you're doing. But, you know, you you mentioned your interest in film uh, as, as a sort of first path of your career. This this would make a pretty interesting, I don't know if it's a documentary, I don't know if it's it's fiction, but I if you're not working on a screenplay on the side related to this story, I mean, I... I, for one, would submit that this would make a pretty incredible. I'd love to see this played yeah. out. Yeah, a lot of people have told me that, too. You know, I'm just lazy. I've never written a screenplay before. <laughs> but, you know, a few people have well, even reached out to me. Yeah, I do. You know, I yeah, I've got a few years, hopefully. So, yeah, you're, you're, you're still you're still a youth. You've, you, you have plenty of time. <laughs> truly, <laughs> truly. So th this year um, you were published in you, you, you were able to um, kind of use the award as a launch pad for, you know, um, writing for other publications, you have two stories that I saw in June, one in the New York Times and one in the New Yorker. The New York Times story, The Vast World of Islam in 300 Recipes, and I'm sorry if I if I mispronounce her name, Anissa Helou? Yeah, you've got it. Anissa Helou, for Le mm -hmm. Lebanese of Lebanese descent? Mm-hmm. And, and how did you find... Her, I mean, she's she's she has eight cookbooks out, um, and Middle Eastern food has really come to the fore in terms of the American palate and and curious food folks, interested food folks, um, embracing Middle Eastern food in in the West generally. I mean, she, she's uh, home based in Britain, and your story mentions about the rise of Middle Eastern food in Britain. But how did you um, how did her story catch your eye? 
So I knew that um, I was aware of her work before and I knew that this, you know, extremely large book was coming out very soon. And uh, that kind of same week that, you know, I was kind of aware that it was uh, coming out soon. The food editor of The New York Times, um, Sam Sifton, who's wonderful, he contacted me being like, hey, you know, just had a thought, like maybe you'd want to profile Anissa Hillow while she's still in town because she was you know, on book tour. So she was in New York City at that point. And I was like, uh, yeah, I'd absolutely love to do that. You know, because like what really compelled me about Anissa's story is the fact that she, like me, is someone who never intended to really end up in food. You know, her whole career had been in art. And then, you know, I opened the story with this, but it was 1992 when she was at this dinner party and she was like talking to a bunch of Lebanese people about how there were no Lebanese cookbooks. And she was kind of struck by that conversation and she was like, hmm, maybe I should write that, you know? And all of a sudden she's just, you know, she's had so much success within this field that, you know, she never even intended to find herself in. And I'm always interested in people who just accidentally stumble into food writing or, you know, some sort of food adjacent career because that's how I see myself. Um, And I think that her book, you know, this reflects in her book, but she is such a historian by heart, you know, and she is so anthropological and sensitive in the way that she talks about food and how, you know, it's never just about a recipe, for example. Like she writes so beautifully about how recipes can tell us a lot about culture and the people who created it and the history behind it, et cetera. And so those kinds of cookbooks always stand out to me, you know, ones that kind of get at the heart at how food touches so many other facets that, you know, can probably get lost in a lot of uh, food writing that exists online, you know? Right. Well, I, I have to say um, the anecdote from your story that uh, made me jump up out of my chair. I'm, I'm old, so I'm allowed to say, uh, no, it's not appropriate for anybody to say LOL. Uh, I laughed out loud at this anecdote, though, um, was her talking about um, having studied French existentialists and, and reading Sartre and Camus and sort of resolving in her in her uh, early years that she was not going to be doing any cooking. And she had a boyfriend and she and the boyfriend went to a dinner party hosted by a, a glamorous um, American woman with blonde hair who, who did a great job of cooking. And she resolved immediately in, in that moment, oops, maybe I should start cooking. Oh my God, I know. I mean, she's a hilarious person in general. There's so much of her personality that I could not fit into that piece, but I wish I could have because she, when she was even telling the anecdote to me, I was just like, you know, I was like falling out of my chair. It was fucking hilarious. Yeah, it was fucking hilarious. That was it. I almost <laughs> fell out of my chair. That's the way I should have said it. Not, but, yeah, I did laugh I mean, out loud. I'm telling you, what a great line. Um, <laughs> kind of a nice segue into uh, the story that you had in the New Yorker. Now, you must have been. Were you working on both of these stories at the same time, the Anissa story and the story of about Samin Rushdie? Yeah, so the Samin Rushdie story actually I'd been working on since March. So it had been a few months in the works, and it took a lot of interviews with her and Salman Rushdie uh, for that to kind of happen. But, you know, I, again, I have this weird, I guess you could call it a fetish or at least um, an attraction to uh, cookbooks that are old and that are being revived in some way, like the Princess Pamela cookbook, for example. So when, again, it started with a Publishers Weekly article that I saw in uh, the late winter um, that was talking about how Samin Rushdie's cookbook was being 
released for the first time in the U.S., you know, after 30 years of having been originally published in uh, the U.K. only and then having gone out of print. And I was just like, whoa, 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 okay, this woman is literally related to a world-famous author. I had no idea that this person existed. She has written a cookbook. You know, she has this, like, thing that exists in the world that no one has been talking about. So I just kind of approached that with so many questions, like, why is this being released now? Like, what is what does this say about our moment and how our understanding of Indian food is evolving, etc.? You know, it was kind of a, it was at the intersection of my very niche interest, which is like old cookbooks, women of color writing those cookbooks, a profile, you know? So I was like, I have to write this story. So I pitched The New yeah. Yorker and they they totally bit, so... So, so th- that story—it's in the June, uh, early June New Yorker. It's the Indian cookbook that chronicles the Rushdie family's food traditions. Now, you just expressed your own curiosity—four or five questions that you wanted to get answered—and you have them addressed in the story. Can can we share with the House of Carbs audience a couple of of um, those tales related to? your uh what what you learned from Samin um and the time that you spent with her yeah so i was really curious to know about uh how she was recipe testing for all of these things that were in her book and what like salman's involvement in them was and he was funnily enough very heavily involved he was testing recipes himself because this whole cookbook was basically an ode to the foods that she had grown up eating um in India when she was a child. And so Salman carried those memories with him as well. And I don't think that anyone really thinks of Salman Rushdie as a food person, quote unquote. So I just love this image of, you know, Salman like taking a mallet and, you know, uh, like <laughs> like pulverizing meat and everything and just cooking in his like, you know, small kitchen and helping out his uh, sister with her own literary project as he, his whole profile was rising in the world. Um, So that was one of the big things that I really wanted to convey with the story was kind of like how this cookbook also illustrated the bond between these two siblings. Because again, I don't think a lot of people know that Salman Rushdie even has a sister named Samin who has her own career in food like this. Well, and I I was also taken with um, the role of their, their mom and how the food tradition that they grew up with was very different than uh, and different from what Samin herself conveyed in, in her cookbook. Um, their their mom um, in their early lives was not, you know, inviting them to come in the kitchen and help her cook, and she was not adventurous with spice and so forth. That that kind of thing. Uh, and yet Samin found her own identity. Um, and, and let me let you share some of this as opposed to me doing my version of, of totally. what, the, 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 reading the story. Right. So, I mean, another thing that really stood out to me as I was reading the book is that Samin kind of came to food later on in life. And again, I found a lot to relate to here because, you know, she was kind of kept out of the kitchen as a kid. She didn't really know how to cook. But then it was kind of in adulthood, really, when she developed her own understanding of food and it became very sophisticated as she grew older and but she didn't really have a lot of like food memories from her childhood or at least you know cooking memories or whatever and um, that's what I found really fascinating too because I think that a lot of the food writers whose writing really excites me you know are people like her Samin Rushi and um, Mother Jeffrey for example that amazing Indian cookbook author who 
did not cook at all when she was a kid for one reason or another, but then you know, it was only when she found herself away from home and really missing her mom's cooking that she started to really cook and develop an appreciation for the food that she grew up with because that's kind of my own relationship to food as well. You know, I didn't really like see my mother's cooking, for example, as something special or anything to write home about until I was away in college across the country and, you know, I found myself really missing it. And then I started to realize, wow, like, you know, I have a lot of emotional attachment to food that I just kind of took for granted growing up, you know, and now might be something great to interrogate, you know? And so that's what's wonderful about being a food writer is that, you know, I get this opportunity to look inward basically and kind of, you know, express what food meant to me growing up, et cetera. Yeah, it's your job. Totally. It's great. I love it. You know, it's like, you know, everything's my diary. (laughs) Well, that's a funny segue into uh, us discussing um, how how we're sitting here in this moment together. Your story published on The Ringer, uh, A Flower in the Debris, The Legacy of Benihana, Rocky Aoki's All-American Empire. So um, I'm not I'm, I want to um, discuss this kind of in, in depth with you because there's so many aspects of the story and Rocky Aoki that um, are, feel so present right now in 2018. So, so relevant in the, in the middle of the summer of 2018. And yet this, this is a, a guy who died, what, 10 years ago? Yeah. 10 years ago, July, 2008. Yeah. So um, let me begin with, with, with this. How many times did you eat at Benihana in the preparation of this story? You know, it's really embarrassing. I only ate there once. I didn't do the whole restaurant critic thing where I had to eat there at least two or three times or whatever. I only went once. And if I were to write this story again, I would have eaten there at least three times because I love it. I fucking love Benihana. I'm sorry. You know? That's my guy. See, this, this is why I knew we were going to get along. I effing love Benihana. And I know that you love Benihana because I could tell from the way that you wrote the story, even though the story... Honestly, Hungry Homies is really not about Benihana at all. It's more about this incredible character. Uh, and, and I don't want to mispronounce um, his given Japanese name. Hiraoki? Is that how, how do you pronounce it? I think it's Hiraoki. 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 Yeah. And, 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 you know, he arrived in the U.S. and, and he was uh, here to pursue um, his his love of wrestling of all things amateur wrestling and and his coach couldn't pronounce Hiraoki so they and, and I can't either um, they <laughs> asked him to assume uh, Rocky and 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 he he did so willingly but um, it's it's an incredible tale of I mean I don't want to over uh, dramatize it but his his family survived um, the 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 bot the World War II bombing by the U.S. In, in Japan and then relocated to the United States and he really built something out of nothing. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot here that felt very uh, current and important to revisit because, you know, so I knew that this anniversary was coming up, this 10-year anniversary of his death. And like a lot of my other subjects, um, you know, this Rocky was a person of color. He was also an immigrant. And I think right now in this current political moment, you know, there's a lot going on, obviously. First of all, you've got a figure like Trump. And in this story, I do compare uh, Rocky to Trump at one point. You know, I said that he 
well, he actually compares himself to Trump. I'm sorry. He's just like, yeah, I had a lot of money just like Trump, you know? Um, and but at the same time, he is this immigrant who came to America in a time when there was so much animus and resentment towards everything having to do with Japanese culture. And, you know, America did not understand Japanese food in the way that it does today. And he really fought the odds to you know, build this food empire, basically, that today, you know, people kind of make fun of. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people throughout me writing this article were just like, oh, you're writing about Benihana? Yeah, cool, whatever. You know, they were just like, you know, turn their noses up and just like acting oh, like snobs. Oh, I don't snobs. like that. Yeah, I hate I it. I don't like you know? that. Because I, again, it's just, it reminded me that his whole legacy, like people didn't even think that he really had a legacy in food. You know, I was reading a Grub Street obituary uh, that came out right after he died in 2008. That was just like, does he have a legacy? I don't know, whatever, you know, super snarky and dismissive. And it kind of just made me think like, okay, so no one has really given that much thought or attention to what this man did to advance America's understanding of Japanese food, you know? Um, and that's not to say that he's a figure who's worth like, you know, kind of like rewriting his history and being like, actually, he's amazing and great. You know, he like gloated about his wealth. He uh, right. apparently cheated a lot on his wives. You know, he just had a crazy, I mean, crazy life. But his his the, the yeah founding genesis is kind of a thing. Right. I mean, that's, you know, people might have mixed feelings about uh, the founding of a softcore porn magazine. Uh, absolutely, you know, and I certainly do. You know, I try not to let that bleed into my uh, finished product of the article too much, but there's a lot about him and his politics that I was kind of like, ugh, I don't know about this guy. But his contribution should not be minimized or erased, you know? And so I was thinking that in this current moment, you know, it really makes a lot of sense to kind of revisit him, especially when we're also talking in the food world a lot about immigrant food and what immigrants have done to American food culture, um, especially after the election, you know. So the first Benihana was opened in, in 1964 and Rocky insisted on staffing up with um, uh, almost entirely folks of Japanese descent because he wanted to deliver at that time um, his version of, of, of an authentic Japanese experience. Now, uh, you know, for that moment, for that era to introduce a cuisine that was completely, you know, literally foreign to the U.S. and the U.S. palate, you know, that that's kind of a, a an admirable thing, I think. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's completely bold, but it's what's fascinating about Rocky is that, you know, he opens his restaurant with a mission like that to be unabashedly Japanese yet, you know, later on, especially as he gets a lot of success, he's quoted as saying things like, you know, the minute I forgot I was Japanese, like my success began, et cetera. He's basically like suppressing, you know, um, aspects of his Japanese identity um, to succeed and kind of assimilate, you know. Um, and that was right, what was fascinating right. about his whole legacy is that it's, you know, he's trying to blend into this American landscape that didn't want him. And what did he compromise in doing that? Because I think that today... And I think the reason why a lot of people kind of scoff at the notion of eating at Benihana or anything is because they don't see it as authentically Japanese whatsoever. Um, they just see it as kind of, you know, the circus where you go and like, you know, where uh, where losers go to eat in Midtown, you know, and um, or the suburbs of America. And um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think that's 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 uh, 
short-sighted obviously i still love uh benihana i appreciate the theatrics and and i was really um you know uh i don't know what the right word is but but the the story um created a depth to uh the origin tale of, of benihana um that, that I, and i'll never apologize for liking benihana by the way um, but the the it's just an, an incredible story. A flower in the debris. The legacy of Betty Hanna, Rocky Aoki's All American Empire at theringer.com. So Mayuk, um, I'm gonna let you go. But uh, two things: what are you working on? Are you are you at liberty to share with us um, any of the projects that you have going at the moment? Yeah, well, I am. I am working on a few stories that I can't say where I'm writing them for right now, but they are. <laughs> funnily enough, about immigrants and food. And I am also working on a book proposal right now. I'm kind of, you know, in a mad dash to finish it by the end of the month. And it'll be focusing a lot of the topics that we were just talking about. That's all I will say for now. But, you know, one of the big reasons why... Yeah, one of the big reasons why I went freelance is because I just wasn't finding the time as a staff writer to really focus on the writing that I cared about. And uh, the beard win gave me a lot of the visibility and time to kind of do that. So I was like, why not? You know, and I just turned 26. So I'm an idiot to kind of give up insurance. (laughs) But, you know, here I am just I'm going to be poor for a bit. That's fine. That that's now's the time to do it. Let me let me just validate that decision. Thank Um, you. How how can we find you? I mean, I, I did so much of of the research um, for our chat today just by your way of your Twitter account. Is that the best way to keep abreast of, of what you have going on? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter, or more active on that than anything else. So my Twitter handle is Senator Mayuk. That's S E N A T O R M A Y U K H. Uh, so good luck finding me there, and I'll keep you posted on everything I write in the coming months. Yeah, it's a it's a great follow, um, and I encourage everybody out there to to jump on it to see what Mayuk has going on. My friend, thank you so much for coming on House of Carbs today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, culinary comrades, big big thanks to Mayuk Sen. Some great stories in there. I encourage you. As during the course of the interview, I mentioned the names of the stories. Go look up those stories. They're unbelievable stories. That's the only proper way to do them justice. How about a quick word before we get to food news with Juliet from our friends at Yahoo Fantasy. This NFL season, you be your own GM and be a winning GM. Turn the season into a fistful of epic wins by joining a Yahoo Fantasy Football League. Yahoo spent the whole offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. Upgrades like easier scoring, new trophies, and a buttery smooth app experience. So when you come to play fantasy football on Yahoo, the wins are as epic as the season is long. To get in on the wins, you got to get in on the season. So Yahoo Fantasy... You got to download that app. It's the only app where you can manage all of your season long and daily fantasy teams in one place. Create or join a league right now at yahoo.com slash carbs fantasy football. That's C-A-R-B-S fantasy football. Taste Buds, today's show also brought to you. You're not going to believe it. Also brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Because we care about you and we love you, my friends. 
Everyone knows about the risks of drunk driving. Don't do it. You can get in a crash. People get hurt or killed. Let's take a moment and look at some surprising and and bad statistics. Almost 29 people in the U.S. die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. That's too effing many. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. It can have a big impact on your wallet, too. If you get arrested, you're incurring a giant legal bill, and you can lose your job. So what can you, my hungry homies, do to prevent drunk driving how about this plan a safe ride home before you start drinking designate a sober driver pull up your favorite ride sharing app or call yourself a taxi there are a million ways to not drive drunk if somebody you know has been drinking take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home it, it's, it couldn't be any easier now We all know the consequences of driving drunk. The one thing that is for sure is you are wrong if you think that it's no big deal. Drive sober, my friends, or get pulled over. All right, culinary comrades, it is now time for Food News. Yo, Juliet. Hello, I'm back. You're back. I'm back, baby. Do you... Do you forgive me? I had your uh, podcast partner in crime, Amanda Dobbins, on last week. Great and it stuff. Was, uh, yeah, it was it was robust. I have to say, Amanda's a passionate person. That's what you need for food news. So I'm glad you found her. Me too. Yeah. Um, so speaking of passionate, you were on the Cape recently. I was. I, I warned you before you left that we were going to have to go through the highlights of your eating and drinking experience on the Cape. Are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm born ready. <laughs> I know that. I know that's true. <laughs> All right. Hit, hit me. I'll let you rank. You rank the items. I'm not going to ask you. Gonna, you. You do it. I'm going to go with highs. I just want to hit you with the highlights. Why be negative? You know? Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Best meal I had was a lunch at Max Market and Kitchen in East Ham, Massachusetts, which is like the town over from Wellfleet, which is where we go. Um, and Max, if you go to Wellfleet, it's well known. They have like a shack on like on the harbor and they have a new market one town over. And it is so great. Like everyone's waiting on like long line to like get this a table, like basically literally like in a sandbox in Wellfleet. Just go over to Eastham. It's so good. I'm saying Eastham like I'm British, but like on the Cape, they say Eastham. Obviously, that's what they say in Massachusetts. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, I would have said Eastham also. That's how I, uh, that's, I don't think that that's a uniquely mm. British thing. I say whatever, anyway. both. Anyway, so maybe it's a New York thing. Who knows? So I uh, we went to Max mm. and I had the fried scallop plate for lunch. And uh, fried scallops are so fucking good. I just feel like they're not like a food. SFG, SFG, so SFG. FG, so fucking good. They're not in vogue. Like that's not like a not like a like a trendy order, fried scallops. And I right. don't know why that is. Like they're so they're better than fried clams. I prefer that I prefer scallops to oysters, like even not one fried. Like, I don't know. It's just was so delicious. Perfectly done. Really fresh. Big sea scallops. And it came with um, maybe the best French fries I've had in like ever. I can't remember any better ones. They were so good. And I'm so happy. And a great coleslaw on the side. That was like a perfect level of like vinegar to mayo and a lot of cabbage. And it was just 
such a delicious meal. My mouth is watering thinking about it. And there was like no line. Like we didn't have to wait because the e- Max and Eastem is just like not popular. Oh, yet. so I'm dying right now. I'm headed up towards the Cape uh, on Saturday and I'm going to be up there for a week. Now, I don't know if I'm going to make it to East Ham, um, <laughs> but I might have to figure out a way to work this in because so many aspects of what you just described, that is if that possibly the A number one uh, uh, beach, summer, yeah. August food experience. Scallops, you're absolutely right. So underrated. So underrated. When they're done, when they're done right and you described all those accompaniments, when they're fried perfectly, every bite is a stellar bite. It's a sweet bite. It's a, it's a, it's a rich bite because, yeah, the, you know, scallops, texture. this is the thing. So right. good. Yeah, so you don't have any. This is the issue with clams and with oysters, both of which I love, by the way, um, especially fried. Yeah. But you can have you can have bites of those where it's more batter. You have all all batter, or maybe there is some sediment. Um, and this is not a knock on the purveyors of the oysters or the or the clams, but there's a there's a little bit of a misfire in the bite. Some of which, you know, kind of authenticates the experience. Like, I don't mind those those little uh, nuggets mixed in because it, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sitting here. I'm looking at the water. This is, of course, you know, this is how it, how it comes. But you don't have that experience with perfect scallops. I'm so happy you talked about the fry, the fries to go along with it because that's the thing. Perfect French fries to accompany the scallops. That's how you, you uh, balance out the richness of the scallop. You have Completely. delicious salty french fries right Completely. there. And they were such good french fries. I don't even Have you ever been to Ranch One? Did you ever go to a Ranch One when that was a chain that was around? I don't think so. I don't know if it was here. They used to have it in New York. And uh they okay. always that was a great fries. I don't even know how to describe these fries cuz they were so good. They were like the perfect marriage of like a fast food fry and a steak fry and uh, I don't, I, I just, they were like ineffably delicious. They were so good. I could have had like a, a another basket of them. And I'm not even a huge and, coleslaw person. And like the coleslaw was just perfect. It was so good. All right. Help us close out this number one meal. What did you drink? Um, I also, I had a, a, I had a polar seltzer. Polar's one of the best brands. And it was okay. like, it was like, it was Polar's grapefruit seltzer. It was really good. Like I, I'm just, I'm a oh, flavored seltzer girl. Yeah. I didn't have an alcoholic beverage with this one, but All right. it All was, right. you know, I was taking it easy. I, it was really good. My mom is really into Moscow mules right now. So she made those while we were at home. Um, and then I need to talk about ice cream because New England is wonderful for a lot of reasons. And to me, it, one of the top reasons is for the dairy. I just absolutely think they have yes. fantastic dairy. And so one yeah. of like the landmarks and like most beloved places in Wellfleet is PJ's, which is like a fish fried type of place. You know, they have like burgers, they have lobster rolls, they have fried clams, they have, they've got it all. Um, and they have an ice cream window that you can go to from the outside and also an ice cream counter that you can go to from inside. Everyone waiting online outside. I don't know what you're doing. Just go straight inside to the, to the ice cream counter. Um, Something that is like a little bit hard to find nowadays, but th- but they always have is the cherry the cherry dip. Like you know when you get soft serve and then you dip it, and it's like the hard shell on top of it. The chocolate one, yes. The chocolate one is is pretty prevalent. It's like a normal topping. That's traditional. Yeah, yeah. Cherry is something that like is a little bit harder to find, but there you can find it pretty in the Northeast if you know where to go. 
I had black raspberry soft serve with cherry dip, and it was oh so good. It was like These so meal. so many synthetic flavors, and I do not care. That is summer to me. It was so <laughs> good. Don't give me your artisanal, like authentic Earl Grey hard ice cream. Like just give me that good black raspberry from the from the uh, machine, the soft serve machine, and dip it in in the cherry dip, and it was just so delicious. Yeah, you're at the beach. That's what you're supposed to do. Exactly. That's exactly the, the, the point. I mean, when else? You can get artisanal when it's, uh, you know, the first week of November and, you, you know, you're working on, on livening up the, the palate. The, the middle of the summer, it, August is, is, is for, for cherry hard shell. Exactly. And, you know, it's such like a regional experience. I, I think the like summer in the Northeast, I mean, every every pocket of the country has a different like summer culture and different summer experience. And in California, it's kind of weird because June is usually a very gray month and then summer really extends to the end of September. It's hot till then. Um, but like in the Northeast, by the time you get to like August 10th, like you're really savoring every day and like every opportunity to get ice cream. And it's just such like a feeling that is really hard to describe if you didn't, if you don't know it well. And it's just to me like the most nostalgic feeling because I always loved summer so much as a kid and being back in like the sweaty wet, wet weather. It's just, I don't know, it's just like really special and particularly when it's punctuated by fried scallops and black raspberry soft serve. I think you win for best meal of the summer. <laughs> I mean, we should just put this out out on the Thank you. on all of our social media. This This is the very best. Uh, summer meal. The only thing that could make the summer meal better is is a beer, a and beer. we'll let the hungry homies come in and tell us what beer would go perfect with that. You I, know, I just don't as, drink as beer. We, I know, and we've demonstrated that we don't we don't know beer here on House of Cards. No. I mean, we're, I'm I'm a, I'm I can't wait to learn. Yeah, when we have the first beer guest on here to help us walk us through. But um, also that, by, that what a what a meal. Yeah, I also just want to mention that I went to Boston for like 48 hours where I had a fantastic lobster roll, like just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you have to when you're there. I had it. You have to. At James at this like, it's like kind of like a, like a food truck, but not. It's more like a, I don't even know how to, it's like a trailer right on the okay. water. It was called James Hook and Company and it was really fucking oh, good. Oh yeah, famous, yeah. famous, famous. Yeah. Absolutely. It was fantastic. Good. So that I did you, it you, and it was very happy. It. Yeah. You did. You you covered all the bases, all the New England summer bases. It's such like a special place and time of year. I I like. It's very hard for me to like convey how much I love summer in New England. <laughs> did you take any pictures? This is my last question. Not really. You want to know why? Oh. When I was on the Cape, my phone wasn't charging properly. It's like a long story. Yeah. And I was so worried yeah. that my phone would die and like I would never be able to charge it again. And I'm like so many miles and hours from an Apple store and don't want to waste time going to an Apple store that I was like, I'm just going to use my phone as sparingly as possible. So there you go. All right. Well, this this is really sizing up as a challenge. I might have to, during my vacation, drive to East Ham with my phone, get these scallops, get the French fries, get the slaw. And and document this for the hungry homies. I, I might have to do that. I'm not promising it, but I'm I'm really incented now. Um, I I really think you should if if you can swing it. All right, I'm gonna try and do it. What about that's your food news? Yeah. What about my personal um, news? The world's food news. We got yeah. some good stories. Are you ready? I'm ready. Waffle House. There's some news there. Everyone loves Waffle House. There's <laughs> anytime you say Waffle House, you have my attention. You know I've never been, right? 
What? I've never been, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what to say. I'm literally speechless. My experience in the South is kind of limited. I've been to a lot of Southern states, but like in my adult years, it's been for work. And as a kid, it just, I don't know. We just never went. I got to go. We are going to broaden your horizons. I, I mean, we, we've been threatening to go to Toronto. Uh, and we've been talking about that for like 10 months, but we're going to an effing Waffle House before we go to Toronto. You have to have. I Robert really Brown might unfriend you. He might unfollow you, unframe me, all those things. Rembert might take personal affront at this. I know. Well, I'm glad you brought up Rem because the Atlanta-based chain Waffle House is now offering a food truck that you can rent out for private events nationwide. Uh, the Waffle House website says used for pro- for private events only. The food truck brings our unique experience right to you. We can pull up and cook your desired menu choices for you and your guests. The story comes to us from the Daily Meal, and they write that means you can get Waffle House steak and eggs, pancakes, hash browns, sandwiches, and burgers all at your event on demand nationwide. However, there is a bit of a hefty price tag attached. For starters, there's a ninety dollar rental fee and then a fifty dollar per hour mileage fee to and from the event. Also, events anywhere outside Georgia may incur a lot fee for the cooks and the driver. Uh, don't forget there's also the per person cost, which is based on your menu options and how many people you're having. Uh, but this could be a reality. I assume it would be like incredibly expensive to do in California, but I need to look into it. Um, I love this idea. Uh, I will say this though. I, I'd, it's not for me. I, Ooh. I'm, I'm out. Ooh. I'm out on the waffle, on the waffle house food truck. Tell me more and about the that. Reason- the reason is the only proper way to experience the Waffle House, the only way to do it, the only way that food makes sense to me, you know, to my eyes, to my nose, to my ears, is by physically being in the Waffle House and ex- experiencing the ambiance, experiencing the other customers, mm. experiencing the folks serving the food and the the, the decor the lighting, I need all of that. All of those variables, all those crucial factors are are elemental to a proper Waffle House experience. And I don't I'm worried that if I have the food from this Waffle House food truck, that it's gonna diminish my love of Waffle House. And I just I'm just not willing to take that step, Juliet. I, I'm glad you brought this up because um for whatever reason, this is a personal quirk. In the odd years, so not this year, I always name a best meal, like the best meal of 2017, of 2015, whatever. And the meal is not just about the food, but, like, but the ambiance and the experience and like who you're with and like, was it really fun? Like all of, all of those things. And I totally agree that like a great meal is not, and this is why like service is important and why like running the front of a house is important. It can't just be about... Um, who like you know what you've ingested and and all that it's like so much about the place and the people around you so i'm kind of with you yeah so i i god bless i hope this works for waffle house anything that adds to the uh, financial foundation of this brand because i wanted to live another hundred years i support it um but i'm not trying the the truck no offense yeah Okay, fire enough. I probably won't either. I can't even imagine how expensive it'd be in California, but you know, maybe I'll find myself in Atlanta. The Super We're Bowl gonna, is there. We, we, the the Super Bowl is in, in Atlanta, and here here's what we we need to do. We're we're gonna get Rem. We're, we're, he's gonna be our ambassador, our emissary. I'm sure there are, he he'll be very busy as as you know uh, Atlanta's native son, but we'll have to have him make some time for us. 
and we have to get to J.R. Crickets for the lemon pepper wings, and we have to get the Waffle House. That's going to be his our 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 house. Now he's one of the very first House of Carbs guests, so I think we can we can impose on him. We okay. can lean on him a little bit. But right. I, I really let's block off early February 2019. House of Carbs I'm on the there. road at the Super Bowl. Juliet Littman and Joe House go to Waffle House. Atlanta. That's it. We got it. We okay. got it. Content, baby. I'll see you there. In the meantime, I got a couple of crime stories for you. Are you- <laughs> we love crime stories. <laughs> we do. This one has a these this, this one has a happy ending. Um, this is a story from the CBC in Canada, and the headline is: Bank robber returns to the scene of his crime sixty years later for lunch. Are you ready? For the folks, yes. for the folks at Ottawa's Riviera restaurant, it was a reservation request unlike any other. This is just sort of poetically written. Six decades ago, the fancy Art Deco-inspired eatery was home to the Spark Street branch of the Imperial Bank of Canada, the site of one of the most brazen robberies the city had ever seen, according to newspaper reports from the time. Boyne Johnston, a chief teller at the branch, walked out of the office on a Friday with roughly two hundred sixty thousand dollars. This is uh, six decades ago, 60 years ago. So that's like a ton of money, like a ton. 200. First of all, let me ask you this question. I, I'm, I'm sure it's changed in, in, in uh, 60 years. Is there a bank branch in America right now that you could walk in and get fine $260,000? Probably not, right? Like That's an incredible... Well, this is Canada. Maybe they're different there. True. <laughs> That's an incredible amount of money to have in a branch. <laughs> it's seriously true. Um, so this was like a story that was well known. Um, there was a $10,000 reward for his capture. I'm sure the people who worked at this restaurant knew like the legend of the bank and the space they were in. And so um, Alex McMahon, the wine director of the restaurant, said it was a great little legend for us, but I don't think any of us knew he was still alive. And then a reservation popped up. And in the notes, the guy had said, I'm bringing my friend back to the bank that he robbed. (laughs) So the guy went back. Uh, Johnson mentioned to his friend that he would love to come back and see the bank at some point in his life. And they found out that it was a restaurant now. So just made a day trip. It seemed like he was home. He was pretty blown away. After that lunch last Friday, McMahon offered to give Johnson a tour of the building. Johnson accepted, but he ended up being the one telling the lion's share of the stories. (laughs) McMahon added he took us through where everything was he took us through it where everything was when it was the bank and how he did it and how he pulled off the robbery. And then they ended up sharing a glass of bubbly inside the former bank vault that now serves as the Riviera's wine cellar. Uh, and ultimately, <laughs> just like in the movie, Johnson's profligate adventures followed the robbery eventually came to an end. According to newspaper reports, he was arrested 17 days later when he was on the lam, caught inside a Denver nightclub. He'd made it to America. <laughs> Living that best life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think he brought 60 back... 60 years the- ago. I don't think he brought the, the money back. nightclub scene. But uh, this is pretty wild. I can't imagine like going back. And also the fact that he didn't have like a more more punishment or anything. Like it's just like a weird story. Well, I, I well, who knows? He maybe he did have more punishment. Maybe he just spent 55 years in jail for stealing so. all that money. I mean, uh, it's worth a lot. I'm going to Google this because this, this was caught my fancy. It's pretty um, wild. But I do. I appreciate this gentleman's. Um, Sent dr- dramatic intuition, like the the returning to the scene of the crime. Uh, I'm I'm I mean, and it was it seems a crime where no one was hurt. Yeah, and hopefully the vast majority of that cash that he walked out with it was was returned to its rightful owners, and he he has uh, ma- served his time and made his peace with society. But that's a that's a good story. I, I like know. that story. By the way, he served four years in the former Kingston Penitentiary in Canada. 
So four years. That makes me think that they that he only spent like five thousand bucks or something. Like yeah. he gave the vast majority. They got most of it back. Probably. I agree. Most most of it went right. back. Another crime yeah. story. This is a fun one. This is from the Star Telegram. And it says Ramen thief escaped with $100,000 worth of illicit noodles, Georgia cops say. If you're a college student stocking up on your dorm room this fall, you might want to stay away from any sketchy-looking folks selling ramen. Those noodles could be illicit. Police in Fayette County, Georgia, say someone made off with nearly $100,000 in packages of the savory snacks sometimes in July or August. Now they have no idea where the missing noodles have gone. Police say someone parked their 53-foot truck and trailer at a Fayette County Chevron with permission from the owner and locked it up on July 25th. When that person came back, the truck and the $98,000 worth of noodles inside had vanished. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I... That's wild. That's why I love it. Um... What are you going to do with it? I don't know. Sell on the black market? Really hard to say. Is there is there a, is there a ramen black market? Maybe, maybe one we're not aware of. I mean, that's a ton of ramen I know. because the 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 packages are what? They're not even a dollar, right? I have to assume that's like going out of the country or like being shipped somewhere where they don't have ramen like it's not like hard to come by here in America. No, I know. I I don't know what you do with this. Like, if I maybe there's a Robin Hood element to it. If I hear about some mass quantity of ramen being donated to a food bank somewhere, um, I'm that's what I'm rooting for as the outcome of this story. Or maybe they're going around in the truck, dropping off you know uh, cases of ramen at food banks all over. Uh, the the mid Atlantic and and on into the Midwest. That that's what I'm rooting for is the outcome. <laughs> I agree with you. I ho- I hope so as well. I, I hope that the ramen's going to people who like really need food or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. One last emerging trend to tell you about house, and it's a something called the tip the bill challenge, which is people are taking pictures of their their bills at restaurants and adding the hashtag tip the bill. And they leave the entire cost as a tip. So like this one person at Maggiano's in the Cumberland Mall left $72.51 as a tip, which is the, also the price of the the meal itself. And this is like popping up on Instagram all over the place. And I like it. Shout out to all these people who are big tippers. I, I support tipping. Like, you know, why not? That's a lot. Yeah. You, we've covered in, in over a year's worth of food news, lots of stories that highlight um, how hard it is to work inside of a restaurant. The people, the waiters and waitresses, the front of a house, the the, the chef, everybody involved. R- making food is, is not like super lucrative. I mean, we had celebrity chefs on and there are wildly successful, but that's the exception, not the rule. It's a hard life. So this idea of rewarding um, the, 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 the folks that, that bring together this entire experience in a way that, that honestly, you know, this is, this is, uh, and I don't mean to go off on this quick policy tangent, but I'm reminded by way of our mutual friend and ringer hero, Shay Serrano mm. of his, um, frequent highlighting of 
how underpaid teachers in this country are. Oh, totally. And, you know, that's that's a conversation for another show, maybe Shay's podcast, if Ooh. Tate Frazier will ever let him have a podcast. <laughs> um, but there, the, the, the fact that there's a mechanism by which we can recognize in the food world that the people that are responsible for bringing together this experience for us and there's no such thing as too much generosity for it because, you know, it, it is a, a great meal. You just shared with us this unbelievable meal that you love so much in East Ham. East Ham. And there's no amount of money that um, you you could, you know, give over to the Well, maybe there is an amount of money. But look, you know, the experience of it was so wonderful for you. And that's going to be a highlight of your 2018. So what's the right way to convey to those folks your appreciation Huge tip is is a great way to 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 commemorate it. I I'm with you. I, I should have done that, but hopefully this this PR will be good for them too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't say all that to shame you. I know. I just I feel bad now. You didn't give, I messed up. Maybe you gave a great tip. Maybe you gave a great tip. <laughs> uh, that's well, if all I, I go up there, you. I'll tip the bill. Okay, great. I'll, I'll go up there. I'll I'll order two platters and I'll tip the bill. One for me, one for you, and I'll I'll tip the mother effing bill, Juliet. Represent me well, please. Right, I'm, I got your back always. <laughs> Thanks so much, House. I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy your vacation. Thank you, Juliet. I promise to take a few pictures along the way. <laughs> do do what I could not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, there we go, my hungry homies. Thank you for joining us once again on House of. Cars. Of course, we have another terrific episode coming up next week. There may be a theme, and it might rhyme with pizza. We have a great guest for next week's show. In the meantime, I will be putting out on the social media some of the fantastic meals I hope to enjoy up on Cape Cod in the Massachusetts area while on vacation. And please hit us up on our social media, at the House of Carbs on Instagram, I want to know what beer I should drink. If I make it over to East Ham and enjoy these scallops, what beer am I having with these with these scallops? Hit us up. Until next week, my friends. Let's stay hungry out there. <laughs> <laughs>